Our guest today is Nicholas Payton, a multidimensional Grammy Award-winning artist that hails from what I consider to be our most multidimensional and fertile artistic city, New Orleans. Nicholas grew up in a musical family. His mother, Maria Payton, was a classical pianist and operatic singer. His father, Walter Payton Jr., a legendary bassist and educator who I had the pleasure of playing with and getting to hang around with some. Um, Nicholas is primarily known as a trumpeter. In fact, one of the leading trumpeters of our or any generation, as well as the heir apparent to the rich lineage of New Orleans trumpet masters, going back to King Oliver and Louis Armstrong. I would say Buddy Bolden as well, but I don't think anyone's actually heard Buddy Bolden play, but by reputation for sure. But I can tell you that trumpet player only scratches the surface in describing Nicholas. I would better characterize Nick as a creator or a creative. Yes, he's an amazing trumpeter, but equally talented and productive as a composer, producer, pianist, bassist, drummer, writer, blogger, but you hadn't heard that term in a while, blogger, uh, and all around leading advocate and voice for our music. He's a fearless, direct, he's highly informed, and in my experience, amazingly spot on when he speaks of anything musical and creative, as well as their intersection with politics. And that has actually remained constant since I first met Nick when he was just 17 years old. Nicholas is the originator of the term BAM, Black American Music, and hashtag BAM, and has penned numerous writings and led many discussions of the problems surrounding the name and associations of the term jazz or jazz. His thoughtful and tireless promotion of BAM has gained steam in many ways over the past 10 years, culminating in being included as one of the New York Times' 10 definitive moments, the decade in jazz. I didn't even know the New York Times had such a list. Did you know that, Adam? I did not know that. They, they did. Um, Nicholas has released over 20 albums as a leader, first on the Verve label starting in the mid-90s with some of the finest records of that era. Uh, and I know that because I was around during that era, culminating with a personal favorite of mine in 2000, Nick at Night, with the classic Nicholas Payton Quintet, Ruben Rogers, Adonis Rose, uh, Anthony Wanzi, uh, Tim Warfield. Uh, Nicholas has remained prolific throughout his career as a leader, as a sideman, a producer, uh, eventually developing his own label, Paytone Records, with his latest release, Maestro Rhythm, releases Maestro Rhythm King and Quarantine with Nick, which is a killing album. It's got a scary cover. Don't let it scare you off. Don't sleep on that it one. It also came out like the first week of quarantine. The, how that that's Nick Payton, man. He's, he's always ahead of the curve. Um, Nick has played and recorded with way too many legendary artists to list. I'll throw out a few. Danny Barker, Ellis Marsalis, Clark Terry, Elvin Jones, and Art Blakey. And those he played with and recorded with just before he even turned 20 years old. Um, so that explains why I can't list all the other ones. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. I've also had the pleasure of playing and recording with Nicholas for over 30 years now. Wow. Including, I just that, now that I said it, there, there you, it is, 30 feel, years. Wow. Old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I was able to feature Nicholas on my 2001, my first release on Max Jazz, Something Unexpected, which was just a, great a, record. a joy and an honor. Uh, and a forthcoming recording, maybe from just last year, the last time I was in the studio was actually with Jeff Clapp and Ruben Rogers and Nicholas Payton a couple days before the pandemic hit hard. Uh, we're going to get into all that, hopefully, but it's my pleasure uh, to welcome Mr. Nicholas Payton. What's up, Nick? Hey. Yo, 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 what's going on? <laughs> How you doing? Just just starting a little fire here. Hey. Hey. That's right. 
I think probably after you saw our, our technical proficiency, you're like, uh oh, I got to spark it up now. Got to burn some Palo Santo for you cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for being here and uh, for joining us. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And um, you know, I'm I'm such a I'm such an intersection of a friend and a fan. So I don't know what you call that, but that's me. And I've I've always uh, just looked up to you in terms of you're not only an amazing musician and I've been on the bandstand with you many times. So I've experienced that and also, you know, heard your bands, but, um, you've developed this, a whole nother kind of, I don't even want to say sideline career, a parallel track of really the conscious and a commentator. And I would even say critic of this music and the direction that we're going for our generation and beyond. And it's just an amazing thing to see from, from close up and from far away. So I just wanted to, commend you on that and um i was going to ask you first though about like what's been happening with you over the last 14 months we saw each other in march i think it was the second week when we were in the studio and got to play together and i remember we were even then we we're like wait do we hug or do we shake hands <laughs> it was during that kind of funny period then but yeah. i know you've done a, a, a bunch of great great um, live streams and recordings and stuff but what else has been happening yeah uh let's see yeah um right at the start of the lockdown um uh I uh, holed up in my crib with uh, Sasha Mazikowski and Cliff Hines, and we made the Quarantine with Nick album. Um, it's funny because we had just done a gig at this place called the uh, um, Side, what, what's, what's it called? I'm not remembering the, the name of the joint, mm. but uh, we had just done a gig days before the lockdown, and we were saying we should really get, it was like we've done a handful of gigs together, and it was like we should really get together and record. Mm. But none of our schedules cut a line. And then they started announcing that they were going to lock this shit down. And I was like, uh, we're all available now, so let's do it. So uh, we uh, that weekend, Friday the 13th, Saturday, uh, we recorded two days at my crib. Uh, Cliff, who plays modular synth, but was also our recording engineer, uh, he recorded the project on Ableton, uh, mixed it, I sent it to my mastering guy, and it's to date my fastest release from recording to mixing and mastering two weeks mm. out to the public to what I think might be possibly the world's first uh, COVID-19 record. Oh, it had to be. It, I remember when it came out, I was like, <laughs> what does he know that we didn't know? I, I know. <laughs> Well, and it was super confusing to me because I saw I I had seen you, Nick, literally like nine days before. This. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, if he was planning this, he definitely was. He definitely kept it a good secret. He's super relaxed and wasn't talking about any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's um, that's amazing. And then you know you did a string of just amazing live streams early on that's actually really you know inspired me to try to do some stuff because i was kind of like oh i guess we're not gonna be touring or playing or anything and then i was like dang nick made a record he's doing live concerts <laughs> two records two records, <laughs> two records two yeah records. um but how did that come about and and you know how much of that have you done i know you're going to continue doing that and what like like what was the experience like for you playing for no audience playing for an audience but one that wasn't physically there before and how did you kind of navigate those waters yeah, uh, you know, me, uh, for me, art, as an artist, as a being on this planet, I kind of live it, you know, uh, with with my heart on my sleeve, you know, so like any type of calamity or destruction, I just put it into the music, 
you know, to me, that's the whole point of art is that it's not, not only serves as a form of catharsis, but it's, it's a healing. Mm -hmm. And to me, ultimately it's a way for us to, uh, not only, uh, have fellowship with one another, but hopefully in terms of the listeners and the supporters out there, I want to try to uh, hopefully inspire and elevate them. And I felt like now more than ever, we really need this music. Mm. So as an artist, I feel like this is why I was put here. It's now my responsibility to get off my ass and like really, you know, create, you know, it, you know, like it just really made me want to hunker down and like do it to the hill even mm -hmm. more so than, than, than normal. Mm. That's what's so inspiring about your music. It always has been, uh, but especially now during these times, every time I check myself uh, against what you, what I see you doing, I'm like, nope, that's not honest enough. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, you mentioned the heart on your sleeve. I'm like, I could, I could be more honest with this. I could be more me in, in my art. It's, it's incredibly inspiring to watch, man. And to hear for sure. Yeah. And I, that's kind of what I was alluding to um, in the introduction you know, for you, Nick, is just that I, I never saw, you know, once you started writing and becoming an essayist and, and cultural commentator, um, especially around, you know, the issues of jazz and BAM and, and the origins of this music and, and all these different issues, I saw it very much as an extension um, because we played music together a lot and I was around you during my formative years which was weird because you're younger, but you were already four. I never could figure that out, but it was like, math work, I know I was like, but you know, you've always been such an honest musician and, and people would be like, man, did you see, hear what Nick said? Did you hear what Nick wrote? I was like, yeah, that's like, that would, that's, you've always been that since you were, uh, you know, a teenager. And I always admired that because most people have to grow into that. And I, I, I it's been exciting to see you growing into it being, more acknowledged and understood and really becoming a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's over this last, when did you come up with, was it like 2011, 2012, bam, 2011, and 2011. And that was that first mm -hmm. blog post, right? Right. Right. It was interesting because the funny part is I had started writing about it like two years prior. Mm -hmm. So it's just as much of a mystery to me as anyone else. Why that particular post set off the firestorm that it did. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually in Baltimore in my hotel room right before Soundcheck, uh, Warren Wolf mm -hmm. brought me to Baltimore to do a gig. And I was just tweeting at the time. That was, this is when Twitter was really hot. Mm -hmm. And I just got these stream of conscious tweets. So <clears throat> I did that. It was, it was about a good 45 minutes an hour I was doing it. And I was noticing that I was getting like a very strong reaction to these tweets. And I said, I might be onto something here. So I copied and pasted each tweet into a line, into a WordPress document. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people call the poet, call the piece a poem or a manifesto, and it was not conceived as a whole. So really every line in that piece is actually a different tweet. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, that was what it was, you know? Right. It was a work in real time, like a solo. Mm. Basically, it was like an improvisation. Amazing. Wow. And then um, can you just talk a little bit about what you've seen as, uh, 
you know, the evolution over the, I mean, it's crazy now. We're, now we talk about it. now it's a decade. This is 2021, right? So the evolution of the discussion around, you know, the disposal of the term jazz. Um, and I don't know if you mm-hmm. do, do you see BAM as a replacement per se for the term? I know that you see it as a much more inclusive uh, term mm-hmm. than what had been looked at before as jazz. But mm-hmm. um, do, like, how do you see that evolution evolution over this last 10 years? Has it have you felt that as a steady thing or was there kind of like a certain tipping point where it just started to to become more accepted? Good questions. Uh, no, BAM is not a replacement term for jazz, because I think a lot of the initial concern among so-called jazz musicians was that, well, how do I make the distinction between what I do from gospel and R&B and hip hop? And, and my point was, I don't want a distinction mm-hmm. because these are all different root branches on the same tree. I think the problem with jazz is that it separated itself from the whole of black musics and more more importantly, the popular specter. Mm. Because so-called jazz is essentially America's, the world's first pop music. But when jazz created this very elitist idea that somehow it was better than the roots from which it came, I think it's actually suffered. And pop music has suffered mm. because now your current pop artist doesn't have an idea that Louis Armstrong should be as important to them as he is to us or Billie Holiday. Mm. This is the great work of, of American popular music and song, you know, and we all should be borrowing and listening to one another because they're all a part of this umbrella of black American music. And uh, I think one often misunderstood thing is that um, first that I'm on a campaign to change people from using the word jazz. I don't really care. I don't want my music referred to that, but I'm not going to tell anyone else what they should call what they do mm. uh, is one thing. And the other thing is, um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the whole point is to establish uh, a family within the, the whole of these black musics, not this elitist idea that somehow jazz is more important or more intellectual or so forth. I think those are the things that serve to kill the music because when people want to go out for a weekend, maybe they can only afford to go out once a month. Well, do we want to go listen to this jazz where it's a stuffy environment? We can't talk. We can't have a good time. We can't dance. We have to have a thousand records in our collection to be able to understand what they do. No, I want my music to be as sociable and enjoyable as everything else people listen to. And yes, it, uh, perhaps has that intellectual head from if you want to listen to it. But me personally, I don't even mind if folks are talking while mm-hmm. I'm playing. And maybe I, I attribute that to perhaps my upbringing in New Orleans, not only playing outside in second line street mm-hmm. uh, band culture, but also like in New Orleans, like you play in clubs and people talk, music is a part of the social environment. Mm-hmm. And I think this idea that you have this jazz quiet policy where and they make this announcement before the show. It kind of puts a damper on the whole thing to me. I don't I don't like that vibe. I'm happy for people to be talking. It only really bothers me if it's like one couple loud and we're playing a ballad or something. Right. But really a general hum of conversation is cool. Mm. What I don't like is when people are staring at me quiet like like I'm in a cage in a museum or some <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. Like Talk amongst yourselves. Enjoy. Someone's spending $200 to come hear me at the Blue Note with a date, and you mean you can't talk 
to the person you brought. Right. Like this costs a lot of money for you and maybe you might get lucky and maybe you wind up getting married and having a child all spurred on by my music. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the point? Like I feel flattered if my music contributed to the life force of this life. Wow. Um, also like when we listen to the great records, let's take someone who was considered uh, almost uh, a cocktail musician, the great Ahmad Jamal, very polite, quiet music as he was categorized. Mm-hmm. If you listen to Live at the Persian, there are people talking all through that thing. Right. It's not a quiet room at all. Dishes clanging. So when did we get, yeah, when did we get so precious where people can't talk mm-hmm. amongst themselves? Doesn't mean they're not listening. Right. I mean, but it, this is kind of a revolutionary thing, I think, and an angle and and kind of you know lens that that you're that you're t- describing here because isn't it part of like what became sort of the advanced and elevated jazz aesthetic was about shh, we have a listening policy. This is a quiet room. You have to do your homework. This is music to be put into a museum, and so, so we are going to charge two hundred dollars. And it's you know this is better than other music because you can tap your foot to it maybe, but you better keep that in your shoes. It better not come out, you know, above it. And and it feels like, you know, we can certainly blame promoters and you know the whole infrastructure of the music that started to do this. But I also feel like a lot of musicians we were kind of to blame because we've bought into that. And I think that might be why, why there's been a lot of pushback against this because it feels great to be like, oh yes, we're elevated. Now we're at the level where we're like classical music. We're gonna be in the great halls of mm-hmm. Europe and people are gonna bow down to us and we're gonna be at this other kind of a level, you know? And and look what's happening with classical music. <laughs> They're trying to get more in on what we're doing and other popular music because the audience is doing it because the shit is dated. Like no one wants to sit still in their seats and feel like they have to be quiet. Music and and listening to music should be an active engagement if you choose to. Right, right. I think too you hit on something and I, I really wanted to talk about this because you have such a, a, a great concept on this um, and people are so interested in that and, and that is just what New Orleans is culturally with music and you kind of hit on it that it's something that, that is experienced in a, a way that's really different than just about anywhere I've ever been and I was fortunate enough to kind of have my formative years in New Orleans and so it almost it became normal to me uh, and mm. it was such a gift that I got but I think that when you describe this kind of uh, you know cultural aesthetic that exists there that definitely transcends any kind of like labels of, of music of different kinds of music and what that that black American music experience that that came forth that is certainly exemplified all around the world but probably in New Orleans more so than anywhere where you can see not only the threads of it, but it's still existing and like where it comes from. Yeah. But can you just talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Because it's like the only city in the world where, you know, you can uh, have a band assembled that lives in a neighborhood. They take it to the streets. People come out of their houses and everyone from the two-year-old to the 102-year-old knows what body movements corresponds with certain rhythms and so forth. So the music is actually a part of the social fabric of the city mm-hmm. in a way that it's not something looked at as entertainment or something we do on the weekends or only at the club and party. It's a part of the everyday fabric of how the city moves. And I think that relationship to me is something that I've carried, and I'm sure for you as well, Peter, to our every experience that we have. 
Mm-hmm. Even when we're in a Carnegie Hall or at a North Sea Jazz Festival or whatever the venue is. And I think that's what makes New Orleans musicians in particular uh, such a hot commodity mm-hmm. amongst the world because there are, they are, they never lose that sensibility of community and how music touches people, mm. which is the point of us playing music for people is that we reach them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, oops, there we go. There we go. Um, <laughs> Nick, I, I got so many questions and I want to ask you. No, let's, let's but, go, man. <laughs> so one is, can you talk a little bit just about the nineties and like, what was the, the jazz aesthetic there um, like, and, you know, we've talked about oh, this. Boy, I feel pictures are coming on. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to, well, I might, I might, I might pull out a few pictures. <laughs> I got some pictures. <laughs> man, I got, I got a bunch of pictures of that Jazz Futures 2 tour we did, bro. Oh, man. I, okay. I got to see that. I don't yeah. have, yeah, yeah, I don't really have any of those from, from, from then. So yeah, I got a bunch of pictures from that tour. So, yeah, but I'd love to hear your memories of that. So what Nick has just referred to, we were in Jazz Features 2. Peter, what was your oak tree budget like back then? <laughs> oh, man, my, my oak tree budget was good, and so was, so was the whole bands, man. But, um, yeah, we were in 2, not to be confused with 1, but that was another, I mean, I mean, I think about, like, we had such a fun time on that tour and playing, but, I mean, you talk about formative years, but it was Nicholas Payton uh, on trumpet, of course, Herb Harris, so I haven't heard that name in a minute uh, on tenor. Ronald Westray trombone, Chris Thomas on bass, and Brian Blade um, on drums. But I think that like the whole you know sort of '90s jazz vibe. Like, where do you think that 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 sort of places? Like, where is that going to end up being placed historically? And like, what is the impact on young musicians today? And I'm thinking about you know for sure like Josh Redman's group and your classic groups, um, some others that I can't you know I mean just everybody. Um, where, where do you see that as from a kind of historical perspective now? The feeling I get from my students um, and the younger cats is that they view that, that as a sort of like a heyday, mm. which, you know, in retrospect that I look at it, it was, it was the last hurrah. It was the milk and honey years before the door kind of closed on that idea. That was when there was, you know, big budgets, you know, my first album, you know, my first five album deal with Verve, you know, I got a hundred thousand on signing. Mm. Like that's just unheard of in today's culture. Uh, now we've transitioned to, I see people doing Kickstarters to even be on a major label, which mm. the paradigm has completely shifted where like record companies would give you tour support. Or if you had to go out to a WBGO while you were doing a week at the Vanguard, the record company would pick up the band in, in a stretch limousine, take you guys out there in a day, bring you back. They would buy tickets uh, and seats at the club if you were a beginning artist to make sure that you did well so that the numbers looked good so the next time you establish this reputation of, of selling tickets. And, Wait, those folks weren't there to hear us play? Man, you burst my bubble, man. I thought all those people were there for us. <laughs> no, but the record. But back then, too, the record company people came. Like all the staff came but, at yeah. least once. It was a, just a part of the process. It wasn't expected. No, I would say it was expected if you had a gig at a label that you loved the music. Mm. So that was, it was your responsibility when your artist came to town that you would at least once go down to the club. And what that does is it fosters an environment of uh, when people are invested in your music, they have a more they have more interest to see that it does well. 
So when the people at your record company have actually broken bread with you and gone to dinners with you and gone out to that trip to BGO with you and come down to the club several times that week and they know all the band members, they're really working on behalf of people they consider family. Yeah. So the, the vibration at that time at Verve just very much felt like a family. And I remember us being at a Verve party once and uh, it was the first time I met Abby Lincoln and she, she was just this beautiful uh, being and, and she came up to me and she was like, yeah, Nicholas, this is just so great, this energy. And here's someone who has been in the business maybe 30, 40 years at this point. She's like, I've never been a part of this kind of family before. Mm-hmm. And that was just the vibe and the situation. There was a lot of camaraderie. You know, when um, my band would play the Vanguard, you would have Lou Donaldson in there, Betty Carter in there, mm-hmm. James Williams in there, uh, Steve Turk, two rays in there. He said, and I actually posted a, a recording that uh, we did of, of uh, one of the nights I played in uh, the Vanguard right before we did Peyton's Place. And there were just so many luminaries there just to check the music out. No one paid them to be there. It wasn't because it was the it spot per se, but because everyone was just invested in the music. And I think the overall carry out from the 90s I get was, is that there was more camaraderie, mm. more people going to each other's gigs, checking everybody else out. It wasn't as clickish as it seems now. And so, um, you know, it's, this is going over here, this is going over there. Everybody was still kind of like a community. And there are two things that I often attribute to the big change in New York, uh, to things kind of being like more like where they are now, which Mm. is our Blakey passing away. Mm. That was a big blow. And the closing of Bradley's. Yes. And Bradley's, I feel like no other club has picked up that slap because I kind of feel like there's no other club in New York since where everybody necessarily feels comfortable. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Bradley's, you'd have Roy Hargrove in there, Jackie Terrison in there, uh, Mulgrew Miller, Betty Carter. Do we lose him? No, he's still there. Yeah, Call came in and sorry. Oh no, you're good. He's yeah. still there. <laughs> okay. Call came okay, Call came in and wiped the screen. But uh yeah, Betty Carter would be in there, Cecil Taylor would be in there. All generations yeah. of musicians, Elvin Jones would go there and hang out for days. Yep. And what was it? Everybody about, was there. What was it about Art Blakey that, with his passing, you think? Well, he 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 had established uh, this lineage of artists who he was mentoring from the '50s on through to his his passing. So it was a, a real institution. It was a real training ground. And and in, even like Horace Silver, another one who actually started the Messengers. And that was his band. He basically gave it to her. Yeah. Um, but you had these lineages established. And that was the time where it was the masters who decided who the next cat was. And somewhere in the 90s or towards the end, mm. then you started seeing the magazines or the Grammys or these different ancillary institutions deciding who the next cat was. It wasn't press based then. It was strictly this cat played with uh, an Elvin Jones or played in this band or played with Abby Lincoln or came through Betty Carter school. This is how we know Greg Hutchinson is the next drummer to watch out for because he played with Betty, he played with Ray Brown. This is the next cat. We lost, we kind of lost a little bit of that. So I would say that's one of the singular differences between then and now. Now, oh, 
can I curse on here? Or how, yeah, what, sure. What's, what's, shit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm not trying to shit. I'm not trying to shit on the, the younger generations, um, because in in many respects they have to do what they have to do, and yeah. the opportunities for them to learn aren't as fruitful for them as they were for us coming up in the generations that we did in the '90s. Um, but I do think that there needs to be more of a uh, a motive on their part to study, if at all possible, under tutelage, under masters. And maybe that looks different now because you have people like Carl Allen or like the, the late, great uh, Ralph Peterson teaching mm-hmm. at institutions like Berkeley and Juilliard, respectively, and so forth. So maybe that's the new training ground, so to speak. Um, but yeah, it, to me, it's, it's, a, it's, it's crucial as a young musician to really learn how to play and you want to be a master artist and musician, you have to be around and study and play with master artists, musicians, your predecessors. There's no way around that. There's no course or amount of records that is going to uh, be able to supplement uh, or or, or, uh, be a substitute for that master to student passing down of the torch, if you will part of the culture um, yeah it's, because when we, when we talk about black american music that's actually the point because in its essence it's african so we all are indebted to a more african aesthetic of the passing down uh of, of information as opposed to maybe a more eurocentric uh mindset of studying and reading books and so forth and that's not to say that's one is better than the other they're just different yeah and in the african tradition is more more folkloric. It's more about the griot tradition of the elders sharing stories to the young ones coming up. You know, I can say for a fact that, you know, my years with Roy Haynes, Mm -hmm. he didn't talk about music or how he wanted his music played, but just from one crack on the snare drum, I felt like he calibrated my time. Mm -hmm. I felt like my feel from the two years before I worked with Roy Haynes after I can credit him with completely changing my swing quotient. Mm, wow. You know, and that's just something you can't get from a record. That's something you can't get in a classroom, I don't think. Right. I think it's one so, of the great one of the great things about the BAM movement, about black American music, is amongst all the other things that 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 framework shift of calling the music this is that it teaches you how to learn the music. Like it's all there. It's all there in the culture. It's just for you to understand that and recognize that it's, you know, cause we, our business around here is teaching people how to play music better. And so mm-hmm. to say like, it's there in those masters of black American music, you just have to go seek that out. That's the way, that's the only way, you know, I'm just wondering, Absolutely. I'm just wondering too, Nick, it's you, you made a, I'm wondering if part of the thing that was maybe law, lo- I don't want to say lost forever. Cause I feel like, there can be some reconnections and everybody's recalibrating now, obviously anyway, as we come out of, you know, whatever this, this pause period we were in. But when you were talking about Verve and that being kind of a, a you know, a, a very special time, Abby Lincoln, Betty Carter, Shirley Horn, yeah, yeah. Joe Henderson, you had the older musicians who actually weren't that old. We're almost as old as they were at that time, you know, <laughs> but we were like, like the masters, like, and it wasn't even like, oh, do you think, you know, Abby's better than, I mean, no, they were all their own people, but none of us questioned because we understood like how we graded 
people. They could play. They could sing. Like there was a there was a common, you know, understanding that that nobody ever argued about with them. But that but then the record labels had a huge amount of power compared to now, which is like none because they're not really around. But they were like Verve at least was in sync with that in the same way Blue Note has been at different times or whatever. But then Verve also had you know yourself and Roy Hargrove and Mark Whitfield and you know this great group of younger musicians kind of in the making and there was almost like this tacit approval from the masters to the young players and you guys were all together maybe that's kind of what abby was alluding to you know that story would you know and they would argue you know we 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 know all the great stories about betty versus abby or whatever but it was all about like no no no, we have to go to this next level and you know cecil taylor and betty and you know you know going back and forth at the vanguard and, and and at bradley's i mean that stuff is priceless and i and i do wonder like what what do you see as the as the clearest path to to us not trying to duplicate that time because you can never you know make it happen again but to get back to that kind of camaraderie that kind of fellowship within the music among the generations all the things that this music has always exemplified so well like because people be like how can you have different age i'm like that's just the way we do it i mean like it's always been like that and it's always come so natural so like how do we get back to that that's an easy question (laughs) i think think it's, it's it's as simple as starting by going out to one another's gigs mm. and being present, you know, cause I know for me at that time when I knew Betty was in the back and you know, whomever Javon Jackson or the cats, yeah, man, you really want to play cause yeah. you know, they're listening. Um, so I, you know, I try to do more of that now and I've been doing a lot of that recently now that stuff has been opening up. I've been going back on Frenchman oh, yeah. uh, a bit and, and hanging a bit and sitting in, and even if I don't sit in necessarily, just your presence, I think, is affirming to the current and younger generations. Yeah. And the younger cats should also go to the older cats to learn and to, to be in that space. And and even just from a networking perspective, not to say that you should go with hopes of trying to land a gig, but all too often I get calls or emails or texts from young cats like hey i want to play with you i want to play with you Mm -hmm. but when i'm in your city i never see you there right so if you love my music and you want the gig that bad you should be there every time you possibly can when i roll through your city right at least that way i know that you i see your i I see your face so i recognize you there's an established um relationship and i know you know my music You know, it can't just be a business deal. Like you're gonna text your way into my band. It doesn't work like that. This is a little contrived and forced. Yeah. You know, it should be a very natural relationship. Like I know you're a pianist. I see you every time I come to your city. You show up, maybe sometimes you sit in. So I know this cat already has a, a vibe and a feel for what I what it is that I do. So when my regular pianist can't make it, you'll be the next option I think of, or you might get the gig next. It's just, it should be more organic. So I think, yeah, I think it starts at just us showing up and being present at gigs. And that's something that uh, the late, great Roy Hargrove was just real great at. And it's something I admired about him. And I was inspired and I started hanging out a bit. We got really close because I hadn't seen him for like a good 10 years, maybe. Wow. And then um, the last two years of his life, we hung out quite a bit. And we were running running into each other at Smalls or the Zinc Bar and so forth. Yeah. And I really admired he was there every night. 
Yes. After gigs, if he was on tour, when he'd come back, he'd go straight downtown yep. and go to the clubs. And he would he would bitch to me about it. And I don't know how much the younger cats knew. He would talk about they can't play, they're afraid of swing. Like he would have all these things. But it Talk never stopped it. him. <laughs> he, he it never stopped him from going because he realized the importance and the value of that. And now that he's not doing that anymore. Those of us who are here, uh, his brothers, we need to put the and sisters. We, we need to pick up the slack. Someone has to be in the trenches, reaching down and pulling the youth up, mm. as yeah. our elders did for us, because they didn't have to give us the opportunities they did. I certainly feel like there were better trumpet players. Elvin maybe could have called, but he decided to give this young cat from New Orleans a shot, and we kind of have to pick up that slack. Oh man, that's this is such important words and what and what you're saying. I love this, and I think that. You know, it's easy for us and our generation to be, you know, like they need to come out and show up and they do. But thinking about what you just said, I realized like when we were coming up, we didn't have there was no texting Betty Carter or our Blakey because that just mm-hmm. wasn't out. So we did have an advantage in that we didn't have these options. I think a lot of, you know, with social media, with all the great things as far as you can connect with somebody you know if there's a young trumpet player in california that's just coming up now like they could actually connect with you maybe even get a lesson or or you know something get some feedback maybe even especially you know when everyone's locking down but i mean there wouldn't be any connection back when we were coming up except for when the cats would come through town or whatever Mm -hmm. and but but maybe it, it makes it harder for the younger players to realize what what you just mentioned that that personal connection that being on the gig being present physically in the community because you feel like you can get everything it's like well i know i know nick's whole thing i've I've got his transcriptions i've seen him on youtube i've seen him do workshops and so i'm good you know and then a lot of musicians are shy anyway so they they kind of take that but i i love this idea of like going out there and i think for sure roy was just a leader and i mean he he is funny you say you know like when you come back to new york he's doing the same thing on the road too that was like a 24 mm-hmm. that was like seven 365 yeah. for him he'd be like we would do gigs and you know and, and Roy would be getting tired at the end of the gig. We we're like, ah, but you're not going to hang out tonight. And then as soon as the gig was out, he's like, oh, no, I'm hanging. And, you know, he's like, come on, let's go to this session. I was like, what? How do you know where there's a session in this little French town, man? <laughs> you know? But um, I think you've done a, a great job of, of really connecting. And it feels like in a strange way. I always looked at you and Roy for our generation. It just This just shows how fortunate I've been. You're the two trumpet players that I played with the most from like the age, you know, 20 through now and just now i'm just throwing names around see but i always felt like you guys you, you know because you were great trumpet players but composers and like really leaders of this music you know through this different time and i remember talking to you back in the day nick i'd be like roy said this and then i realized i was like wait they haven't really hung out and i remember talking to roy about you and he's like yeah what's up with that like i was like yeah you guys never really hung out until you got on verve and stuff and started doing some things together and you probably were hearing about each other as like there's this cat there or whatever from way way back yeah through Wenton actually like when i was 12 13 he would, he would be like man there's this cat Roy Hargrove in, in Dallas. And yeah. when I got to know Roy later, he was like, yeah, Wentz would tell me about you when I was a teenager still in school. Yeah. So we like heard about each other for years before we actually met. You know? Right, right. Um, but I mean, I feel like you've, you know, kind of taken the baton since Roy's, you know, premature and, you know, passing in, in a lot of ways in a really, you know, profound and thoughtful way that goes way beyond trumpet players and a, and a, and a fraternity there, which of course is there. 
but I think that this idea that you know you're you're, you're talking about now is going to be so important. I, I know last year, or I guess it was the year before when I did the um, Betty Carter Jazz Ahead program at the Kennedy Center and had all these great young players together, you know, that they do, which is really coming out of, you know, Betty's whole vision. I mean, she started that whole thing. I remember talking with the young students and they hit on some of these same things that you're talking about from the nineties. They're like, man, we just want to get out and play. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, man, you guys is so hip for you. Like we were waiting around for record deals and only a few of us. Not like we all had record. I never had a big record deal. But I'm like, now you guys can go make things happen. And they were kind of like, well, we don't want to go. We don't want to be on social media. We want to have what you guys had at that time. Mm. And that was a real eye opener for me because I was like, wow, you actually can have it. And but they do need us to kind of show show them that, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah. The thing is, it's about, I think, you know, uh, bridging that gap. You know, they also have a lot of advantages that we don't. For instance, you know, the idea that you can do a record at your house now yeah that's studio grade quality and release it to people without the middleman of the record company without having to have tens of thousands of dollars i mean a home studio back in the 90s was something only of was was a, a luxury only afforded to the rich yeah now anybody can have a home studio for very little money and make a quality product um and you can distribute it through social media and go viral and really not need the labels um, and have all the money mm-hmm. <laughs> and own your masters. Mm-hmm. So right. that's something we couldn't do, like owning your masters back then and still having a viable career and being able to connect. Yeah, That's something that uh, we, we had to go through the systems in place. So, you know, it, there's a give and take there as far as like, well, you know, what, what's what's better or what's worse? I think that the idea is that, as you said, like, um, you know, if 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 we guide them and and really show them uh, the and give them the tools for which we've learned, but it's up to them to carry the next step, mm-hmm. the, the the next step further. You know, we pass it down to them and they take it a little further, as we did for those who preceded us. Absolutely. 